Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey. I'm hosting today, and I'm excited to introduce you guys to my friend, Galen Ray Emerson. Galen, thank you so much for joining me today on our podcast. Kristen, thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to be with you. Okay, I can't wait to tell you guys about Galen and hear what she has to say. But before we dive in, I'd like to ask you, if you've been listening to our podcast for any length of time, or say today's your first time listening, and you're like, wow, that was really helpful, we could really use um, some rating and reviewing going on. I mean, lots of people have done this already. And if you have, thank you so much. But if you haven't, when you rate or review our podcast, like on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, it really helps more people see this podcast, know that it exists, and it just pushes it up in the queue. So if you could take just a few minutes to pause this episode and go do a rate and or a review, we would really appreciate it. Okay, so Galen, you guys, is a certified life, relationship, and divorce recovery coach. She provides professional support to survivors of relational trauma, including but not limited to abandonment, abuse, addiction, Betrayal, Deception, Divorce, and Infidelity. And Galen and I met, oh gosh, I don't even know when we first knew of each other, but in 2016, I was going to be near where she lived and we had never met face-to-face. And so let me tell you about the first time I met Galen face-to-face. She rescued me. Galen, you came to my rescue. I got locked out of my Airbnb and my my cell phone was about to die. And I had been all sweaty and nasty from taking a bike ride. And um, she came to my rescue, plugged in my phone with her cord. And I ended up staying at her house that night because a whole slew of other weird, bizarre, creepy circumstances happened at my Airbnb and she helped me be my frontal lobe because I was traumatized by what happened with this Airbnb situation. And I was shaking. Do you remember that? How shaking I was? I do. And I remember just, I did not feel like a grown up. I looked at you and I was like, what do I do? Do you think I should, am I overreacting or should I get out of here? And you confirmed, yes, I think we need to get out of here. (laughs) You like, took me in and like laid a pallet on your floor in your office for me with a teddy bear and like all this lovely self-care soothing environment. And it really left a huge impression on my heart of like, man, this woman, first of all, now she's my friend. And Mm. second, she knows how to help traumatized women. Mm. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that again, Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. And we, we've really connected on this issue of divorce and Mm -hmm. having come from a conservative Christian background and how that impacts us. So I have looked to Galen for resources and I have sent women to her because you know, this issue and it is something that you really specialize in and, and in our field of betrayal, trauma, recovery, most of us are more generalists mm-hmm. and this just happens to be a part of what we do, but this is really a specialization for you. So it's a real treat to have you here talking about what it's like for women, especially women coming from conservative Christian backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
I know that you're probably going to be able to share a little bit of your story and I'm happy to jump in and share some of mine as this happened to both of us yeah. that we went through a divorce. Um, but let me start by asking you, why do you think so many Christians tend to shame women, even if it's kind of in the silent shaming kind of way, or just mm -hmm. in the opinion or the lack of voice about it? So why do they shame Christian women who divorce? And how is this part of your experience and your journey? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And yes, it's been a part of my journey. Um, and to be honest, I've been on both sides of it. You know, I was the girl who, when I got married at the ripe old age of 17, believed that my marriage would last forever. <laughs> Divorce happened to other people. It did not happen to me. That was not going to be part of my story. And so five years later, when my first husband left me for a woman he met on the internet, I was thrust into this experience of divorce from literally my childhood sweetheart and nobody around me really understood the depth of uh, just just the soul crushing defeat that I felt overall that the powerlessness to stop it from happening. You know, I think within our, our Christian culture, especially successful marriage is like the pinnacle. It's like the foundation. It's like the mm -hmm. ideal of what formulates our Christian communities. And so, you know, there's a lot of social and communal expectation and pressure for that, but even more so. So when you first ask the question, let me tell you what first popped into my mind. I think one of the reasons we project that shame or experience that shame has a lot to do with if it could happen to you, it could happen to me. We really want to believe that we're somehow insulated from that. You know, by the time I went through my second divorce, my husband and I had been in recovery for 10 years together. We had fought through the hardest of the hard beginning stuff. And you want to think that it couldn't happen to you anymore. If you could get through everything to that point, surely you're home for the home stretch. And so, you know, when we watch someone we care about, whether that's someone in church or someone in our family or someone in a support group, when their marriage explodes or implodes, that feels very scary. And so I think for often for self-preservatory reasons, we put walls up or we put some distance between ourselves and that experience that feels way too close for comfort because we really, really don't want to believe that it could happen to someone like us in that way. Ooh, very well said. Very well said. I know for me, I felt like um, I was told actually by the ministry that I worked for that marriage is a 50-50 institution, a 50-50. When there's marriage issues, it's 50-50. And since I had chosen to marry this man, never mind that I had no idea that he could do these things or that he would do these things. I had no indication, no reason to believe that, but that I must just be as sick as him mm -hmm. and, or I wouldn't have married him in the first place. And so I was actually fired from my job in ministry because of that, um, people fought for my job who thought that was unjust in the organization. And I was allowed to stay, but I had to do a non-direct ministry role, not mm -hmm. directly ministering to humans, but like doing administrative type work because they wanted me to be able to keep working on myself and figure out, you know, what, what it was that would cause me to marry a man like this, that I must be pretty unhealthy or I wouldn't have done this. So it was an overt kind of a shaming, an mm -hmm. overt kind of a something's mm -hmm. really wrong with you. 
message. Mm -hmm. And that was soul crushing. Now God used it for good. And I'm glad I went through that for multiple reasons, Mm -hmm. but it was awful to go through that and to be looked at as though I am part of the problem. When you know, and I know that when any of the three A's are present, addiction, abuse, or adultery, mm-hmm. it's not a marriage issue. And it's not a 50-50 issue. Mm-hmm. It's an issue with that other person that needs addressed for that other person. And we need to treat the other spouse as a victim. Right, right. Yeah. So what were some other ways that you experienced um, shame? Like from going through your divorce? Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting mishmash of experiences. You know, so one of the things I'll often say is that there is no part of our lives that is not affected, that doesn't go through some kind of major transition or shift as the result of a divorce. We're talking about internal stuff, thoughts, feelings, emotions, experiences. And we're talking about the external stuff, our relationships, our finances, our time, our occupations, our living situations, you know, all of the things that comprise the aspects of our lives. And so So with all of those different things shifting and transitioning and changing and all of the big feels that come along with that, one of the things we often experience is a lot of conflicted emotions, or there's like two big things happening at once. We're grieving the loss of a relationship that also carried with it so much pain. So it's kind of like there's a there's a sense of we call it disenfranchised grief where there's a stigma related to the grief involved. Like especially if you ended the relationship or you're the one that chose to pursue divorce or pull away from that relationship. You know there's a sense of how can you do that but still feel grief and loss about it? Shouldn't you feel relieved? Shouldn't you feel excited or hopeful? Shouldn't you feel proud of yourself? You know, isn't this a good development? But at the same time, that whole fabric of what has been your life is unraveling inside. So there's a lot of, I, th- I would call it, you know, like a secondary experience of shame where we're not socially acceptable in terms of the feelings and the mixed emotions and experiences that we're having. A lot of us and divorce, I mean, divorce is trauma. I say it over and over again. It's its own independent, significant life trauma. And so we're not always at our best selves when we're going through separation divorce, which means we sometimes do and say impulsive things. I remember one time I spent almost 45 minutes screaming at the top of my lungs at my attorney. It was not my proudest moment, but I was so incredibly desperate for somebody to hear me, to believe me, to advocate for me. Someone who's supposed to be on my side, someone I was paying a lot of money to. And I remember just feeling completely out of control in that moment. So, you know, I think there are times when, when we don't show up as our best selves, we inadvertently end up fueling that rhetoric that, you know, there's something really wrong with us. And that's why our marriage didn't make it. When in fact, we're gasping for air, struggling for the surface, trying desperately to hold on to something, anything we can for safety and stability. Oh my gosh. So well said. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy or an other, what, what other people are putting on us. It be, yeah. we, we are acting that out because yeah. of the trauma piece. And so yeah. then it verifies, oh yeah, I must be crazy. I remember feeling like that too. And I remember, well, actually the other night I was doing, um, I was answering questions for some of the men in our men in the battle group. And, um, I asked them by a show of hands, how many of you have seen your wife or your ex-wife after her betrayal act in ways you've never seen her act before? 
Mm-hmm. And almost every single one raised their hand. And I think there's there's the trauma of betrayal. And then there's the trauma of divorce. Yeah. Two separate traumas linked together, but also individual. Yep. Um, and it really can push us over the edge into where we feel like we're crazy, but we're not crazy. We're traumatized. Right. And, you know, another part of that big shift is that so many of the things that we thought we had a grasp on things like boundaries, things like communication, things like self-care, you know, we were in a, we were in a groove. We knew what we were supposed to do and we were practicing doing it. And then the game changes, the rules change. And so we're left with this sense of, wait a minute, what happened to all that work that I invested learning how to take care of myself or learning how to speak for myself or learning how to you know, hold space for myself in these ways? Now I'm struggling and scrambling to do that. And that's a very disorienting and um, intimidating experience. So yeah, lots of things change. And that whole secondary or peripheral or um, incidental trauma. No, it's a very central, very core, very real trauma. And um, and I would I would even say that that is on a spectrum. Like you've got your, your divorces that are less traumatic. And then you've got the ones where the divorce itself becomes a new instrument for traumatization, whether it's the court process or the family process, parenting issues, you know, there's just so many layers of it. Um, it's, it's a really extensive and, and complicated machine, this whole thing. So messy and so painful. How long? I, okay. So when you got divorced the first time you were really young, and um, you had no resources at your fingertips, I assume, in terms of betrayal, trauma, and divorce recovery. Right. No, absolutely. I had a great personal support system. My yeah, friends, yeah. my family, everybody rallied around me and you know loved me through it. But nobody in my young world ever suggested that maybe I needed counseling. They wanted to get us to marriage counseling, but when that wasn't viable, nobody realized that I might need some help to get over this major shift in my life. So it's, you know, totally different than it was uh, 10 years, 12 years, I don't know, some, some number of years later uh, when I went through it the second time and even still far less resources than are available for couples, uh, but definitely more awareness of that trauma than there was the first time for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remember how few resources there were that long ago. I do. I do. When was your first one? What year? First divorce was 2002. Okay. Yeah. Mine was, um, Oh six. So just a few years after you, yeah, there were no resources. Nobody, nobody knew what to do. Um, well, thank God there's a lot more available for people today. However, there's not a lot available specifically for women going through divorce. And so I'm so thankful for your work. We just this year in January started divorce specific small groups in our women in the battle groups, but I have been, I've known for a while, we need to curate more divorce specific content for them. And as you know, in the past, I've tried to start divorce specific groups and use some of your content, which was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So I'd love to hear your, some of your best tips. So say a woman is on the brink of ending, but her marriage due to infidelity or sex addiction, but she feels like, oh my gosh, the losses are too great. I don't know if I can take that next step. Mm-hmm. What are your, I mean, this is a big decision. It's a hard decision. Mm-hmm. What are your three best tips for a woman like that? Yeah. So one of the, one of the biggest things that was helpful for me when I went through it the second time in 2017 was I need 
needed like little tiny nuggets of things that I could grasp onto and hold onto. And I literally, you remember my bathroom. I went with a big Sharpie marker one day and wrote all this stuff on the bathroom mirror. And it was just, I needed to be able to see it on a daily basis. I wrote things like the only way out is through. I knew that if any point I decided to relax my boundaries or consider, you know, accepting what was unacceptable behavior, any of those things, I knew I was going to end up exactly in the same place I had been before. I needed that reminder. The only way out is through. I wrote, I will do this divorce with dignity. No matter what comes at me, even when I scream at my attorney, I will find a way to regroup and do this divorce with dignity. I wrote, you believe in this stuff on behalf of other women, believe it on behalf of yourself too. I wrote, I have choices. You know, so those tiny little things that hold on to pack a big punch when it comes to reminding us why we're walking these very scary, very painful steps. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I got was from a book by uh, a guy who teaches a lot about grief. His name is Alan Wolfelt. I've taken trainings with him. His books are excellent. He wrote about a, a paradox that I absolutely love. He said, when you want to heal faster, go more slowly. And I stopped in my tracks and I'm like, okay, you got to explain that one to me a little bit because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He says, when we rush through a process, an emotional, psychological, internal process, what we often do is miss doing the very things along the way that get us to that point of healing in the first place. So his premise is, if you want to heal more quickly, slow down and take it in those teeny tiny little increments. And that was really, really helpful. I really needed to do that. Um, there was a sense of needing to build a new dream. Like there are some dreams that were just crumbling before my eyes. I felt like my life was kind of being ripped apart piece by piece. And it took a really long time before I I was able to create a new dream in its place, but I always kept in mind the fact that it was possible. It just wasn't visible yet. <laughs> you know, that mm. idea of believing in what you can't yet see. And to that point, I think the final thing I would say is don't even try to go through this thing alone. <laughs> like, and you talked about this before. I was, I've heard you tell your story. You needed that safe, small, usually very small. You tend to pull your people in uh, smaller circles, but lean on that very small circle of people to help you through it. You know, there's an army of women out there who have been through this before us. And we are paving the way for an army that will come after us. We're part of this huge community, but we need to lean on small, close support systems. Um, you know, that's, that's what gets us through the tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oh my gosh, totally. So, you know, when it, when it comes to that brink of making a decision, do you, do, I assume you coach women who are like, they're not quite there yet. They're separated. They're trying to make a decision. Yep. Do you have advice that you give them about how to make the decision? Yeah, I do. And it's simplistic and complex at the same time. Every single woman I've known who's gone through a determination point, whether it's she decides or he decides, but they wake up or, or sit there one moment and realize this is the, this is the moment when my marriage is over. We are not going to make it. Um, that moment happens for every single one of us. And if you haven't felt that yet, that thing that you know, that you know, that you know, that it's true, you're not there yet. And that's not to say that 
there won't be moments when you doubt things, when you question things, when you second guess things, you know, when you ask all of those big questions. But in my experience, those doubts and questions never go quite as deep as that profound moment when you realize this is it we're done. And so that's one of the things I suggest when you're kind of on that brink of making a decision is to recognize that if you haven't felt that yet, you're probably not there. And sometimes that comes from inside. Like mine happened. I remember I was sitting in a car bawling my eyes out after a really hard conversation with my ex-husband. I remember thinking, this is the moment I will look back and say my marriage drew its last breath. It was, it was this weirdest sense of like depersonalization involved in that's the only way I could tolerate it at that point. Sometimes it's something that somebody else will say to you. You know, one of the things that really helped me let go of fighting for my marriage was when my therapist said to me, he has had the best help available because I was kind of stuck in this. Well, maybe there's another therapist or maybe there's another intensive, or maybe if we get him into this group and she just kind of cut through all of that and said, honey, he has had the best help available. And this is where you are at. So sometimes it's that external expression from somebody else to really clarify things and, and give you that, again, that nugget that you can hold on to of truth about where you really are at with your relationship. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. That is really good. Um, I recently learned, <clears throat> you know, the most famous passage people in, in conservative Christian backgrounds like to use to um, kind of give people the information like, no, this would never be what God wants for you. It's Malachi, right? God mm-hmm. hates divorce. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I just want to say to anybody listening to this that just has that ringing in their background, and that is what's keeping you from making the decision. I mean, this is a very personal, private decision. It's between you and God, um, really you and God, even more than you and your spouse. But is that when Malachi was writing, God hates divorce, what we don't realize is that in the Old Testament, there were two different types of divorce. I learned all of this from Leslie Vernick. Mm-hmm. One type of divorce was where a guy would be like, oh, I'm kind of tired of this wife. I'm going to just send her away. And it was basically abandonment. He did not legally release her to marry somebody else. And at that time in the Old Testament days, that woman would be destitute. Mm-hmm. And the other type of divorce was where he would actually legally divorce her and she would be free to marry another. And that could be for multiple different reasons, but it was a release. And a release, a a legal and emotional release of that woman to um, move on and marry somebody else. And when Malachi talks about God hates divorce, he's actually talking about the abandonment, like no recourse, no way to rebuild your life version. And there's a lot of other things in the context of that verse that people take it out of context all the time and assume God would never want somebody to divorce. But in fact, Divorce was given by God as a provision and protection for women and, and, or for men and, and adultery being one of the primary reasons why it's a provision. So I think it's really helpful to understand that you cannot take that verse out of context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, What's your name? 
And uh, Gretchen Baskerville with the Life Saving Divorce is a really great and relatively newer resource where she deconstructs a lot of those scriptures that have been used to uh, really shame and marginalize divorce survivors. Um, her material is fantastic. She's got really great podcasts and interviews. Her book is good. She's got a Facebook group, uh, Gretchen Baskerville, Life Saving Divorce. Uh, definitely one of my favorite resources at this point. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. That's really good to know. 